Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. One big winner in the election just passed was Alex Padilla, who was appointed to the United States Senate in 2021 to replace Kamala Harris and won a resounding mandate for a full term from the voters of California last week. Son of Mexican immigrants, Padilla has a remarkable personal story, which I discussed with him yesterday, along with the meaning of these surprising national results. Here's that conversation. Senator Padilla, it's so good to be with you. I want to start off by congratulating you. You had a pretty prodigious victory on uh, November 8th. Thank you. Thank you. There, uh, it, it is California, so they're still counting votes, but the margin is uh, certainly big. And uh, just uh, being able to settle in as an elected United States senator, just an appointed United right. States senator, is, uh, I mean, uh, it, it just feels uh, tremendous to, to think that uh, you know, the voters of California have once again put their trust and, and confidence in, uh, in me and, and the fight that I bring on their behalf to the United States Senate, uh, but also, uh, and I got to confess, I, I constantly think back on my, my life journey, uh, yes. starting with, uh, you know, my parents who are immigrants from Mexico, my, my dad for many years working as a short order cook, my mom cleaning houses. It's uh, one of those only in American stories in one generation. I want to explore that story. And that's really why I was so interested in talking to you. But because this election took such an unexpected turn, I want to talk a little bit about this because... I don't know how many people had on their bingo cards that uh, Democrats would be in a position to actually add a seat in the U.S. Senate and that Republicans would be struggling to uh, gain a majority in the House. And, uh, you know, and there were some significant Democratic victories in uh, state races around the country as well. What do you ascribe this to? Because, you know, history did not portend this. History suggests the incumbent party takes a beating, especially when the president's approval rating is relatively low, the economy is, uh, is, is rated relatively low. What, what, what happened, do you think? I got to tell you, I was too surprised, at least not on the Senate side, uh, because I knew my, my four colleagues who were considered more uh, not vulnerable, but in tougher re-election uh, races, if you will, Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire, Reverend Warnock in Georgia, Mark Kelly in Arizona, Catherine Cortez Masto uh, in Nevada. I know they're uh, tremendous servants. I've been able to work with them up close and personal the last couple of years. I uh, know they were campaigning strong and smartly. Uh, and you take one look at their opponents and you think, yeah, they're, they're going to get reelected. And so at a minimum, I felt we hold our 50-50 majority. I think the biggest piece for me is we had something to run on. We had a story to tell as Democrats. 
Uh, you think back to uh, January 2021, when I joined the Senate, among the first things I had a chance to be a part of was the crafting and, and voting for the American Rescue Plan, right? We saw how the prior administration handled the COVID-19 pandemic, head of the sand, complete denial, uh, in comes President Biden with a Democratic majority in Congress, and we delivered relief for families, relief for small business owners, for state and local governments, and funding for vaccines because we followed the science. And we're in a much better place. Let me just hold you up a second, because yeah. respectfully, I, I I know those points. You think that this was an affirmation of Democrats. You don't think this was a reaction to extremism on the part of Republicans, uh, the abortion decision of the court, the threat of the House to impeach everybody with uh, <laughs> for things to be determined later. I think. I think honestly, I think it was both. Elections are always about contrast. You have a choice. Yes. This candidate, this is what you're going to get. That candidate, that's what you're going to get. So with Democrats, we knew what we want more of. With Republicans, we're getting the majority. What's at risk? The Dobbs decision undoing 50 years of uh, protections under Roe v. Wade was just the beginning, right? And just on abortion, for example, I mean, post the, that uh, decision by the Supreme Court, Mitch McConnell said, hey, if Republicans regain the majority, a national abortion ban is in play. That was very public. And then they didn't even wait until the November elections. Lindsey Graham introduced the ban. And so that was very real. Uh, you heard our response after the Dobbs decision. The way in which the Supreme Court went about it put all of a sudden into jeopardy so many other rights that we thought had been uh, uh, settled, whether it's uh, interracial marriage, you know, on and on and on. You know, one of the interesting things on uh, abortion well, first of all, let me just say on a lot of the issues that you on climate, for sure, Democrats had an edge on a lot of these other uh, uh, issues. Uh, actually, Republicans had an edge in the exit polls on the economy, uh, uh, you know, on crime, on some of these other issues. But uh, on the abortion issue, one of the interesting things that I saw in this election, and this was brooded about uh, even in the polling beforehand, in states where people felt uh comfortable that their abortion rights would be protected by their state governments, it was less of a driver of vote than in states like Michigan and Wisconsin and uh, places where who the governor was, uh, who the legislature was, actually might affect people's abortion rights. And of course, in Michigan, they had a issue on the ballot there. But to your point earlier, I think abortion moved a lot of people because of abortion itself. The Dobbs decision moved a lot of people because of the dynamic of extremism. The other significant right. example of this cycle was so many election deniers running for office for United States Senate, for a governor, for attorney general, for secretary of state, which is personal to me because of some of the, uh, the, the position I, know, I I'm going to talk to you about that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, so, you, again, you can discuss and debate tax policy, you can discuss and debate health policy. But when voters see that there's one party in particular that is disproportionately trying to undermine confidence in the electoral process, that throws everything, uh, uh, puts everything at risk. And we saw the, uh, the response to that. First of all, you, will, you may have, if Georgia goes back to Reverend Warnock, uh, you may have a 51st vote. What difference does it, obviously control means a big difference there to begin with in terms of judges and other appointments. 
but in terms of control, I think a 51st vote means something too, doesn't it? Oh, I think it's hugely significant in a way that most of the public uh, doesn't understand. It's been tough enough to explain the 50-50 majority where uh, Vice President Harris has been uh, particularly busy breaking ties. But a 51st vote isn't just one more vote, a little bit of wiggle room. Uh, not everything goes by way of you know Senator Manchin, for example. But just the, the way the Senate operates, what a lot of people don't uh, appreciate is when it's a 50-50 Senate, every committee is evenly split 50-50. So you have a bunch of deadlock uh, tie votes in committee. There's ways to pull a measure out of committee to the full Senate for a vote, but it takes extra steps, extra votes, extra time. Uh, it's very inefficient. Uh, just having that one vote margin in committee can continue to have part- party line votes, but the business of the Senate will proceed uh, more efficiently as a result. So that one vote does make a big, big difference. What do you expect the impact of a very, very closely decided House to be? Because it looks like it could be a little chaotic over there. Yeah, uh, honestly, I think it's a TBD. Uh, It depends on which uh, uh, faction of the Republican Party ends up running things. And and the same goes for the Senate, uh, for that matter. Uh, Is it going to be a little bit of a return to, relatively speaking, rational, reasonable Republicans willing to negotiate find common ground and bipartisanship. Well, I think there's a lot that we can continue to make progress on, like investing in infrastructure and things of that nature. I thought you guys did relatively well under the circumstances over the summer and spring and summer. I mean, you passed the infrastructure bill, the chips bill for manufacturing and and right. the- uh, And even the Safer Communities Act, right? Yeah, yeah. the gun bill, which, exactly. you know, these are things that administrations have tried to get done for a long, long time. Right. And, uh, but it's up, it's up to the Republican conferences in both houses to, to make that termination. Or will the faction that prevails be uh, the extremists, the election mm-hmm. deniers? There's a, a challenge to uh, Congressman McCarthy trying to become the Speaker of the House. There's a challenge to Mitch McConnell uh, to retain mm-hmm. his leadership among Senate Republicans. So we'll see not just who prevails, but... Uh, what agenda prevails within their conferences. And at what price do they prevail? Because, exactly. you know, exactly. you, you can serve, but you could be at, beholden to those who allowed you to serve. And that's particularly germane in the House. You know, you mentioned the election deniers. And the, earlier you said you, you, knew the, you knew how good your colleagues were, but you knew how, essentially what you said was you knew how vulnerable their opponents were. Those opponents were largely chosen by Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, chosen on the basis of their fealty to the election denial canard. In many of these states, stronger candidates would have put up much stronger races, and Republicans are going to have to assess that. They have some soul-searching to do on that and uh, uh, so many other issues. I think to me at the core, there's a couple of things. One, we've we've had for years now this debate between access to the ballot, election integrity, security versus voter suppression that we've seen. Uh, you know, should you need a, an ID to be able to exercise your, your right to vote? Should we, you know, restore federal voting rights protections, uh, that were undone by the Supreme Court? Look, I'm, I'm eager to debate and fight about that. But when clearly people are running for office denying, uh, the outcome of previously audited and certified elections, I think in the minds of voters, they think, well, it can be easier to vote or harder to vote. But if, if I vote and it doesn't matter because you have a conspiracy theorist that's going to overturn it anyway, that's suppression at its very, very worst. I don't want to get out of order here, but 
as long as we're on this issue, you were California Secretary of State. You were uh, the, the, the authority on uh, election administration there. You, you were behind the move to liberalize same-day registration and uh, other uh, things that made it easier for people to vote. How consequential were the Secretary of State races in places like Arizona, in Nevada, in Michigan, in Minnesota, places where states that are closely contested states, where you had people who were avowed election deniers? Yeah. Well, let me uh, set a little context here, because I think it was important in 2020, hugely important this cycle, and will continue to be uh, important in 2024 and beyond. But a lot of what has driven my uh, work in the election space is the 1994 National Voter Registration Act, which was approved on a bipartisan basis in Congress, where it includes in the findings that government has a uh, responsibility to facilitate uh, voter participation. Uh, so to me, that's proactive. That's not a passive, well, let's just make sure mm-hmm. there's no cheating involved. We have a role in facilitating participation. Imagine mm-hmm. that every ballot cast should be counted, even if it takes a few extra days to do that, to determine who the winner is. Senator, let me ask you about that, because uh, one, of, one of the things that you hear a lot, and not just from Republicans, is, gee, you know, here we are eight days after the election as we speak. And uh, we're still counting. California will be counting for some time uh, here. And people, you know, it, it lends to a narrative that somehow uh, uh, the thing is untoward. What do you do about that? And, and how do you, you know, justify the length of time that it takes to, uh, obviously, you want to do it right. You want to make sure that people who cast votes are eligible to vote. And I'm sure that's a lot of what, what takes time. But what can be done to expedite this process? Well, I think it's twofold. What can we do, do to expedite the process versus what can we do to better inform and educate the public as to what's going on so you don't leave as much room for the, the conspiracy theories and the lies? I'll give you one beautiful example because uh, every state's a little bit different, but in California, we have a postmark plus uh, law, which means that if you're voting by mail, as long as your ballot is postmarked, on or before election day, it can arrive afterwards and still should be counted because you sent it off on time. No, we ha- can't control the postal service. So if it takes them three days to deliver the ballot to the county or a week to deliver the ballot to the county, that's why here we are a week later still trying to determine how many ballots came in, but they should be counted because that's, you know, we were, it's driven by voting rights for states that have automatic registration. Well, the registration has to be processed first before the ballot is counted. So there's a little bit of legwork on the back end, uh, and that's what you see happening to different degrees uh, in different states. The other thing about California, and, and this is a good problem to have, it's you're dealing with the dynamic of sheer volume. Uh, David, I am proud of this fun fact. There are more voters registered in the state of California than there are people in Florida. Think about that. That's a lot more ballots to count in the Golden State than uh, most other states. So that's going to take a little bit longer. But ultimately, it's better to, to get it right than to get it fast. I know. I don't want to get into sort of cross-country rivalries. Uh, you know, Florida seems to uh, do it in an expeditious way. Why, why are they able to do that? Uh, well, they, they can do it expeditiously, but doesn't mean that everybody who's eligible has an easy time registering <laughs> or, or easy, easy time voting. Uh, so you got to really look at uh, all these policies in totality uh, and how they work together. 
let's talk about you. You you mentioned your parents. Your parents were were immigrants, um, and uh, you as you pointed out, yours is sort of the great American story. You grew up in the San Fernando Valley. There, you had this sort of extraordinary kind of trajectory. You went from high school to MIT and uh, studied mechanical engineering. And then you came back to L.A. and you got a job at Hughes Aircraft and you you worked there, but not very long. Talk about what drew you away from the thing that you trained for to politics. Well, I think important context here is, uh, you know, the earlier part of what you said, proud son of immigrants. I saw my dad work sometimes multiple jobs at a time to keep a roof over head and food on the table, working as a short order cook. My mom uh, cleaning houses, right? Hard work honest work. And their dream in life was that my brother and my sister and I could get a good education because they didn't have that opportunity. That was abundantly clear. And uh, in high school, you know, thinking, well, uh, I like math, believe it or not, and somehow did well in science. Uh, engineering is what counselors and teachers push me towards. And what better schools than the Massachusetts Institute of Technology? Uh, so even when I went there, I knew it was a chance of a lifetime for me but the fulfillment of my parents' dreams after all their struggle and sacrifice. Mm -hmm. uh, MIT was tough. Four years later, coming home with that mechanical engineering degree, ready to start my career. Here is the political climate I came home to. The year was 1994. Governor Keaton Wilson at the time was up for re-election, tough re-election. And he was supporting a measure we refer to as Proposition 187. I saw the governor on television, basically saying the economy is going downhill. The state of California is going downhill. And it's the fault of people like your parents and families like yours. That's what I took away from that campaign. So you're damn right. I was pissed. Uh, I was uh, insulted. Uh, and I realized that uh, might have been a little cynical, as a lot of young people are about politics. But I had no choice but to get involved. And so uh, I started I think organizing before I knew what organizing was, reaching out to friends and neighbors and encouraging people to register to vote and pushing people to the polls. And less than five years later, I was uh, running for office myself. I ran for city council uh, at a pretty young age to represent home. And uh, uh, it's been it's been a, a good journey. I, I want to give your story all it, its due, so don't race through it. I just want to ask you one question. Was politics uh, discussed in your home? Was it a topic? I mean, did you weren't one of these guys. I was one of these geeks who followed this stuff from the time I was five years old and, and so on. And what did your folks think when you said, you know what, I got this gold-plated degree from MIT and I'm going to go in and become an organizer? Yeah, maybe bronze, maybe not gold, but bronze. <laughs> or the brass rat, that's what we call the MIT there. would say any degree they get is gold. So, <laughs> they the, give, uh, so. So, so here's the thing, growing up, were we a politically involved family? Not when it came to electoral politics. Uh, it may not shock you, you know, some of the lower income communities in Los Angeles during the 80s, we recall what the times were in the 80s with, uh, you know, the crack epidemic and gang activity and whatnot. It was a rough neighborhood. Uh, were my parents involved civically? Yeah, to the extent it meant having to organize neighbors and, you know, pressure uh, our elected officials to be responsive to the... Uh, the dangers and the threats, uh, literally on the street where I grew up and, uh, working together, uh, watching my parents organize and be activists, uh, to clean up the community, put us on a lot of lists. So from then on, when it was time to shut down the, 
the landfill. We were called to go, you know, be part of those protests and demonstrations. When it came time to, you know, maybe something at the school, we were called to the community meetings uh, because we were identified as an active family. And so uh, we were act- active politically in that sense, but not around Democrats, Republicans, or candidates for office necessarily. It wasn't until uh, after what we said where I connected the dots in my mind that the issues we care about at a neighborhood level, you know, who your representatives are or aren't, uh, makes a big difference. And we should be equally involved in, uh, in, in the campaign side of things. That's how it started. Well, 187 was an example of that because it did pass despite your efforts. It was set aside by a federal court. And then it was a Democratic governor, Gray Davis, who decided that the state would not appeal. Yep. I worked on his campaign in 1998 before running for council in 1999. You, you worked on a bunch of campaigns. You managed, uh, an, assem- you managed an assembly campaign as like a 22-year-old for a neighbor from down the street named Tony Cardenas, who is now uh, your congressman. Uh, uh, and you, uh, you managed several other legislative races before you ever, and then at 26, you got elected to the city council. Right. Exactly. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. I started as a city hall reporter in Chicago, and I've always believed, and I ended up as a, as a strategist and as a media consultant doing mayoral races and city races around the country. And I've always thought that, and I saw some quote from you somewhere saying, I, I actually think local government is the most exhilarating and interesting and vital level of government because you're dealing with quality of life issues that really touch people's lives in a very integral way. Tell me about your early years as a, as a member of the city council. Yeah. So it was uh, an honor to represent Hull, really. I mean, I ran for office. It was the, the very neighborhoods where, you know, not just I grew up in, I went to the local schools, played in the local parks. Uh, my sister was uh, still in the classroom as a teacher at the time. And so there was a lot of uh, local connections with uh, a lot of need. Right. We saw a city government uh, in general that wasn't as responsive. Um, and I would tell uh, the staff that I assembled, all filled with uh, folks who were from the district as well, that, you know, we're not just going to take this responsibility, but let's look into the lens of a working person's daily life. Right. When you get up in the morning, what are you thinking about? Do I have a good enough job to be able to provide for my family? What are we doing in economic development? Right. If I'm trying to send off my kids to school, do I have confidence in? the quality of those schools or the support for those schools. So what are we doing to influence education and after-school programs and recreation, et cetera? Can people afford a place to live, right? What are we doing on a, a housing development or affordable housing just through the lens of people? And of course, nothing more fundamental than do you even feel safe where you live? Right. I know that you, and, and I know you emphasized all those things, but you, one of the first things you did was you brought a, a new police station to your area. You got the site for a new police uh, station. The reason I ask you this is because, you know, we're still grappling with these issues today. And the tension between the desire and the need for public safety and for good policing and the desire and the need for civil rights for all 
citizens. And you've seen it play out in our politics, right? Because in this last election, you know, the issue of defund police versus more police, uh, you know, what do you say to your fellow Democrats about how to address that issue? Because as you say, both things are important. Everyone needs to feel safe in their own communities. And in many, in many cities and in many communities, it's communities of color that also have the greatest safety issues. Exactly. So I think it, it does come back down to this level of uh, involvement and organizing and participatory society at the very grassroots level. Show me a community where the neighbors are active, whether it's through the PTA at school, whether it's through a neighborhood watch or a homeowners group or any other way that a community is, is involved with each other and neighbors tend to know each other. And I'll tell you, that is not where a lot of the uh, bigger problems when it comes to, to crime and safety exist. It's where the communities aren't as engaged or aren't as involved where when the neighbors don't know each other, aren't looking out for each other as much, that creates the opening. And so when I'm going back to my days on city council, one of the things I'm proud of is we identified where those neighborhood watches or homeowner groups were, where they weren't, and let's go organize uh, because that was such a key to doing that. Plus, you want to talk about community police relations, even when the police officials aren't as, uh, you know, sometimes they're very receptive uh, when, they're, when they're not as much. Their first excuse is, well, we don't even know who to talk to. Well, let's take that excuse off the table. And you bring them to the meeting and you organize the neighbors and you start creating uh, that dialogue uh, for relationship. Uh, and, then, and then you kind of expand from there. Well, I just was wondering whether you thought that the whole discussion about defunding police was an unhelpful discussion. And did it hurt Democrats? Has it hurt Democrats? Yeah, it's, um, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a catchy phrase, but I think when it comes to governance and policymaking and, and leadership and organizing, Right. There's more than just, uh, you know, how many characters, uh, in, in a tweet. The work is really in informing, educating. When I get the questions about defund the police, uh, whether it's in the Judiciary Committee here in the Senate or uh, at events back home, you kind of just, well, let's take our breath here. What is it that we're talking about? Ask any law enforcement expert and they will tell you the best way to reduce crime is to prevent it. So how do we do that? Imagine that, you know, the audacity to, Invest more in education, invest more in positive alternatives for young people to expend their energy, right? Kids, again, as a father of three, kids have energy and they need to get it out. And we're going to give, give them healthy ways to get that energy out, whether it's through sports or whether it's through you know, after school programs, or they're going to find a way and we're taking a gamble. So um, investing more in, in prevention. Should that come from police budget? Should there be fewer police and more of those programs? Or is it, a, is it either or, or is it more of both? Every jurisdiction is a little bit different. Uh, I think in some jurisdictions, if they're spending part of their budget and trying to acquire unnecessary surplus military equipment from the federal government, yeah, maybe you can redirect some of those funds. Uh, but if you're talking about another jurisdiction that's already uh, understaffed, and, and pressed for resources, then yeah, maybe it's not about cutting their budget, but elevating the budget for uh, other initiatives in the community. I accept everything you say. I just hold on to your first thought, though. Public safety is paramount. People need to feel safe in their own communities. And that's, that's something that everybody ought to embrace as a goal. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and law enforcement has to uh, you know, make sure we're keeping up with the type of training uh, that they're getting the type of culture that we're creating within those departments. So it is a, 
relationship that is respectful of the community that they're charged to protect. And cooperative, I mean, which is the kind of relationship that inspires cooperation because that's necessary to uh, to combat uh, violence as well. Um, you know, you got elected president of the city council of Los Angeles, which is a powerful city council. You know, in Chicago, the city council is... Uh, traditionally been sort of tamed by mayors in in LA may, uh, the city council is very very powerful you became president of the city council at the age of 28 there were people on that city council longer than you were alive uh, that's not an exaggeration dude when i first was elected no I, i'm not a, i know that <laughs> yeah you know, that was uh, half the welcome to the councils included some form of you know I'm, i i've been on this council since you were in grade school or in the instance of a uh, former council president, John Ferraro, I've been on this council longer than you've been alive. Two years, you know, aside from uh, trying to get to the work that I knew my district needed, right? Addressing a lot of the, uh, the, the core issues of, of potholes and graffiti removal and, you know, public safety and whatnot. I was also trying to uh, develop the uh, rapport with my colleagues because I knew that when they tell me, oh my God, you're my son's age, or uh, I needed to make sure that I overcame that to be able to take him seriously as a colleague. And um, I think, you know, the best example of uh, being successful, and that was when I earned their trust to lead the body two years later. Then you had shortly thereafter kind of a baptism of fire because 9-11 happened. Mm -hmm. The mayor was out of the city. By statute, the president of the city council becomes the acting mayor. So you were the acting mayor when all this went down, right? what was that experience like? Long days, starting with the, the morning of 9-11, getting a call from a friend of mine saying, hey, uh, uh, there's something happening in New York. You're in politics. You, you may want to be uh, you know, aware of what's going on. Uh, the first tower was already uh, smoking. Uh, saw the news cut to the Pentagon. And then the news cut back to the second tower in New York. Uh, quickly realizing that the mayor's out of state, and so I'm the acting mayor. If our nation is truly under attack, you know, Washington, D.C., New York, who's the predictable third target? It'd be Los Angeles. And so, uh, you know, the phone started lighting up from the, the chief of police and the emergency operations personnel, the, the fire chief and the airport director. I had to just grab whatever suit was ready to go and uh, get myself downtown. And that began several days of uh, living in the bunker, a few floors underneath City Hall, trying to uh, uh, gather intel and working with our county, state, and federal partners, told by the uh, emergency oper operations experts as the face of the city at the time, how do we keep calm in this city, particularly when uh, the intelligence at the time said that no credible threats against Los Angeles. But how do you tell people that when they're seeing the replays on the news over and over and over again? Well, and also, weren't what some of those planes headed west or scheduled to head west? Exactly. So it took a minute to realize, well, yeah, the reason they were planes going from uh, Boston to Los Angeles was because they leave Boston with full tanks of fuel. Right. That would make for bigger, you know, more damage uh, when they hit their intended targets. The other piece, and this is personal and important, David, you know how diverse, beautifully diverse Los Angeles is. Yes. And so immediately after, you know, the attacks and there was some quick uh, assumptions as to who might have been behind it and, and who not, we had to rally the city around, let's not prejudge our own neighbors. Let's wait to get official information to come out as to who might be behind these acts of violence. And one of the proudest moments, I remember being a part of a candlelight vigil on the steps of City Hall a couple of days later where it was 
you know, the diverse fabric of not just Los Angeles, but America. People from all walks of life coming together uh, as patriots, proud America, to make sure that, uh, again, we, we didn't immediately come to conclusions about our, our own neighbors, uh, that we stand, stood up against xenophobia, not just against terrorism and everything else. I remember, I mean, I was a precocious kid and I was managing campaigns. I left newspapering and was managing campaigns, big campaigns when I was 28 years old. I wasn't in charge of a city. I wasn't in charge of, uh, in the middle of a life and death crisis. Were there moments when you just said, holy cow, what, what am I doing here? Maybe my colleagues might have had a, a lawyer's foot up the toes. <laughs> but, you know, you just, uh, I guess you got to have faith that, uh, you know, you, you're in this place at this time uh, in life for a reason. Uh, have a little bit of an education, if, if not a long history in city government, at least, you know, general mm-hmm. politics and government and public service to, to lean on. None of us does this alone. Right? One of the best lessons I, I learned pitcher growing up playing baseball was, you, know, you got uh, seven players behind you. Use them, right? You don't have to strike at every batter. You get them a ground ball, uh, ground out to the second baseman. That's uh, sometimes more efficient, but you got to play as a team. And I think I approached 9-11 and a whole lot of issues over the years uh, working as a team with several uh, of my colleagues. I think the one point where I am kind of proud of in hindsight is, so we have these press conferences a couple times a day telling people go back to normal. And I asked, from the police department, the police chief to the sheriff to everybody else, how do we know the city heard us? And they were sort of scratching their heads like, well, what do you mean? And I'm saying, well, based on intelligence, there's no credible threats. We're telling kids to go back to school, people to go back to work. How do we know people heard us? And there was this awkward silence. And then my light bulb goes off and I'd say, wait a minute, where's our liaison to the school district? What school, uh, what's attendance today? Because if 80% of the kids are back in school, then the people heard us. If it's 10%, they haven't heard us. What's Damn, bus yeah. ridership today, right? If it's a big percentage, they heard us. If not, they didn't. We got Those communication lines are there for a reason. You went to the state Senate. I guess you had, was this a term limit issue or did you just decide that you wanted to go to the state Senate? A little bit of both. You know, I had a, a great run at the city. Uh, I was in my final term. Uh, so I had a you know, political mortality in front of me, but an opportunity to work on some bigger issues. You know, as much as a city council member in Los Angeles can do, which want to impact education or healthcare or some of the uh, bigger issues, the state legislature is an opportunity to make uh, that kind of an impact. What do you think about term limits? Because it seems like in California, you have people who serve and I look, I honor the service, but move around quite a bit because the term limits require it. So you have people moving from the, the, the assembly to the Senate or the Senate to the city council or the or vice versa, and so on. What do you think about that system? Does it work? Do, what, is, what is the effect of it? Well, I, I can't sit here and say I'm completely opposed to term limits because I don't think I'd be here if it wasn't for term limits creating the opportunity for me to run. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, but I do think they need to be balanced. When, when term limits are too short, it doesn't uh, allow you the time to develop the, the experience and the skills as a policymaker, uh, as a leader to, to make an impact before you're yeah, maybe jumping or, or running to the next position. I think I've tried to strike that balance myself, seven and a half years on the city council, not to get ahead of any of your questions, but two full terms, eight years as a state senator. I was in my sixth, finished six years as secretary of state in California before uh, mm-hmm. getting the call for the U.S. Senate. Yeah. yeah. I just want to ask you one question about the state senate, because you were very active there as you are in the U.S. Senate on the issue of climate change and developing policies to help uh, thwart 
climate change. California, it has become the norm to see these horrific forest fires. And we have increasingly urgent emergencies around the country, hurricanes and floods and so on. Are we, we're in a race here. Are we, are we going to win this race? What has to happen in the next few years to see that we do? Well, we have no choice. We have, we have to win this race. Our children and, and other future generations uh, are depending on us winning the race. Like, I feel this is one of the great sweet spots that uh, I'm able to leverage my state uh, legislative experience now to uh, these national uh, policy discussions uh, uh, and debates. California has been a leader because we have been an exhibit on climate change. You know, wildfires are just uh, one example. Yeah, but also leading the country. When you set, for example, fuel efficiency standards, the auto industry has to respond because you're such a big market. Right. Uh, leveraging the, the, the power of, of the marketplace that is California. Uh, and frankly, under former uh, Governor uh, uh, Brown, continued by Governor Newsom, being able to, to enter into international accords without it being the United States and another country, but the state of California and either another nation, another province, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, and so we get to have these climate change debates in Congress. And I can offer an idea that's not just, well, I think it's a good idea. Let's try to see if it works. I can point to measurable progress made by the state of California. You guys took a big step forward, obviously, uh, in this year uh, with the uh, package that you passed to invest in uh, in climate action. Are you confident that we will get ahead of this? How much does the government's role in this matter? Uh, how much can the private sector, you know, local municipalities and states and so on, take us there? And how much does federal leadership matter? It's all hands on deck time. Uh, there's definitely a role for local governments to play, whether, whether it's a municipality that owns their own electrical utility or can leverage uh, their power as a customer of a larger privately owned utility. Uh, state policymaking uh, matters. And of course, the federal government uh, policymaking matters and the role that we choose to play on a global scale. Uh, as we're talking right now, President Biden is in Asia. Uh, and this is the topic of the convening with uh, the, the G20 and others around the world. Climate change is an existential threat and it needs to be treated as such, which means not just policy, but investments. Uh, so the Inflation Reduction Act, which is with its huge climate change elements of it, following up on the bipartisan infrastructure law from last year, are historic, tremendous, but more needs to be done. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You had a long time alliance with uh, Governor Newsom long before he was governor and before you've had the positions you've had. He appointed you to the Senate. Talk to me about him. I'm not going to ask you if uh, about him running for president in 2024 because you will give me the pro forma answer that Joe Biden's going to run and you'll support him. But what about Newsom as a national leader? And do you think at some point he will be someone uh, who will emerge in the as a whatever year it happens to be as a candidate for higher office? I hope there's a, an opportunity to serve that always is present in, in some sort of capacity. There's, I'm sure he'll, he'll have options. Uh, 
uh, Governor Newsom, when his time as governor is done. You know, we first met uh, back when he was running for mayor of San Francisco. Uh, I was council president at the time. We were introduced by mutual friends. Uh, I took an immediate like to him, supported him in that race. Uh, every race ever since, just as you've been a supporter of mine. But I think where we really bonded is both on policy work, right? Comparing notes on what are we doing to bounce budgets in tough economic mm-hmm. times? What are we doing on affordable housing and homelessness going back decades? What are we doing on this, this, and that? But also personally, uh, we were both much younger at the time. And over the years, have compared notes on car seats versus boosters and mm-hmm. uh, had a balance, uh, you know, being a public servant with, uh, with family life. Uh, while working together on issues, uh, you know, especially at the state level, when I was in the legislature, he was lieutenant governor uh, on the he was uh, on the UC Board of Regents uh, and the Cal State University Board of Trustees. Uh, whether it's my uh, uh, legislation making it easier for community college students to transfer uh, to four year universities, or better protecting student athletes in California, I mean, just I can go on and on about examples of working together. So I like to think that when the opportunity to uh, fill the vacancy created by Vice President Kamala Harris, it wasn't just a relationship, but uh, the substance uh, yeah. that uh, we could uh, lean on. So for him, like he is tremendously bright. Uh, he is hardworking, driven by heart and values. To think that uh, hopefully we're on the verge of codifying into federal law marriage equality because of mm-hmm. the threat posed by this extreme Supreme Court. You know, it, it seems... Like not that long ago to me that it once upon a time it was Mayor Gavin Newsom standing up for uh, gay marriage in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And people thought it was too far out there. People thought he shouldn't have timed it. What he did, he did the right thing and he was on the right side of history. And that's just a perfect example, I think, of uh, his, uh, his boldness, his courage, and his work ethic, frankly. Every time I see him, he's always got a notepad next to him and he's furiously taking notes. You think he would sell nationally? I think there's a lot of appetite for uh, not just sort of the, the vision uh, and, and the issues, but to the boldness uh, and, and the courage. I give him a lot of credit. So, you know, we're talking about how did Democrats fare better this cycle that people predicted. Uh, I think him taking a gamble on taking the fight to Texas and to Florida uh, made a little bit of an impact, maybe locally, but was definitely seen and respected uh, in a lot of places. How would you compare him to your predecessor, the vice president, Kamala Harris? who's also obviously a national figure. No, and she's great too. You know, I have a tremendous history of working with her when I was council president. She was the DA in San Francisco. When I was in the state Senate, she was attorney general uh, of California during the foreclosure crisis, trying to hold banks and mortgage holders accountable. When she was uh, in the Senate, uh, she she was my go-to. I think that was her go-to on election security uh, legislation. Uh, so, uh, you know, both tremendously talented, gifted individuals with a lot of... Uh, 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 you know, political skills to, to share. And as long as uh, both of them and a whole lot of other folks that we've worked with are in public service, uh, our countries are better off for it. My goodness, I hope you're not going to have to choose between them. It, it sounds like it's going to be a wrenching uh, decision for you if they should find themselves on the same, on the same path here. Let me ask you uh, uh, the three other, about three other things before we go. You talked before about your parents and uh, you talked about Proposition 187. The issue of immigration is still with us. As you point out, Trump got elected basically uh, taking, uh, you know, it was 187 on steroids. Is there an opening here? How we, you know, a few years ago, the Senate passed a comprehensive immigration bill. The House wouldn't take it up. What are the chances 
of doing anything on this issue. As you know, you have to be an optimist in this business. Otherwise, uh, move aside and let somebody else uh, come in and, and lean in. Let's stipulate your, uh, your, your hopefulness, but I'm asking you as a, re- as a realist. Yeah, no, on, on immigration, I like to think something is doable to be completely realist as much as like a big comprehensive immigration reform bill to pass in the next six weeks. That's sadly probably not going to happen, but can we do something uh, that's very targeted like? I mean, I think the, the front burner uh, item is dreamers. There's tremendous public support for dreamers. I hear from my colleagues, not just on the Democratic side, on the Republican side even, sadly, only behind closed doors. So many members who say, I'm supportive, I'm supportive. In private, what do they can say publicly and be willing to vote accordingly? Is it because they're afraid of Trump? Is it because they're afraid of being primaried? You know, what, what's going on here? I think the urgency that the current status of federal litigation poses to so many uh, young people uh, is a wake-up call. And if we're on the verge of the House flipping to Republicans, and this may be the last opportunity to do something meaningful for quite some time. In terms of relationships between communities, you talk about what a beautifully diverse city Los Angeles is. There just was a uh, municipal redistricting and a municipal race in Los Angeles. And there was an incident in which a recording was made of a ca- uh, of the Latino caucus uh, in the city council in which some uh, unfortunate comments were made aimed at a, a black member of the council and frustrations were voiced because there were competitions for seats and for district lines and, and so on. You end up calling for the resignation of one of your old colleagues who you, whose campaign you managed years ago. Is this a, a growing chasm? And when there's competition between aspiring groups, how do you overcome those kinds of divisions? Look, let me uh, be blunt here. When I heard the content of those tapes, I was, I was offended as well and beyond heartbroken because these are people that... Uh, I know, or at least I thought I knew. And to hear that language, those words coming out of their mouth was uh, uh, a travesty for, for so many. And so just as I will be the first one to call upon any of my Republican colleagues for whether it's racist remarks, derogatory remarks to any uh, group, uh, we have to be consistent and call other Democrats out on it if and when that comes to light as well. And, and by the way, to think that one of the children of one of the council members was a target mm-hmm. as a father, you know, that struck yet another chord uh, with me. Maybe hard to, to, to believe, but you got to trust me on this. That does not reflect the state of race relations or coalition building in the city of Los Angeles. Uh, I mean, it happened in the heat of a marriage race, and they're still counting pallets on that one. But I think as we come out of this chapter, a lot of the work that's been going on for years and years and years to build bridges between communities, not just the Latino community and the African-American community, but the Asian community, the LGBTQ community, the geographic communities in, in Los Angeles, I know because I was part of a lot of the, the phone calls behind the scenes saying, we can't let this set us back, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. This is the time that we got to hang together. And I think that's why you saw so many people from across the political spectrum come out denouncing the remarks and calling for uh, the resignations. I mean, my God, all the way up to the president of the United States. Yes. On on the issue of Latinos in politics generally, there's been a lot of discussion. I'm sure you've been consulted a lot on the issue of how Democrats keep Latino voters in the tent, attract more Latino voters. This in this past election, 
there was not the kind of erosion that people predicted, but yet there was erosion from uh, the previous two elections of uh, support for Democrats among Latino voters. What advice do you have to the Democratic Party to arrest that erosion and rebuild uh, support in that community? Democrats still got a majority of those votes, let's be clear. Right, by a lot. And it differs from area to area because we talk about Latinos, but the Hispanic community is really Hispanic communities. And you look at South Florida, that's quite different than L.A. Or, you know, South Texas may be different than another place. But talk to me a little, educate me a little on what the challenges are within the Latino electorate and what the Democratic Party, you think the Democratic Party needs to do. That's a you know, couple of old adages kind of converging, number one. To the point you just made, the Latino community is not a monolith. We're tremendously diverse. You know, couple of that with, you know, everybody attributes it to Tip O'Neill. All politics is local. So it, there might have been some slippage in, in Texas and in Florida, South Florida, but there wasn't that type of slippage in Nevada because there was a Latino community that uh, helped make sure that Captain Cortez Masto, the first Latina elected to the United States Senate, was reelected to another term. Uh, my advice to the party is uh, to um, not just come in uh, every four years, two months before the election, trying to rattle people up saying this is the most important election of our lifetime, you know, to truly organize. You've got to be there year round. Uh, and it's when you're present and building that relationship, not just for the, for the sake of building credibility, uh, but understanding a community that you can appreciate the differences between like it's, it's diverse in New York, but let's just take the Puerto Rican community or the Dominican community there is going to be a little bit different than the Mexican American or the Central American community in Los Angeles versus the house on the Southern, you know, border of Texas or the Cuban community in, in Miami. By the way, there's a lot of Venezuela and the Colombians there. I mean, we are diverse mm-hmm. everywhere you go. 99% of the agenda is frankly the American dream. It's, we talked about this earlier. What people want a good shot at a good job to be able to provide for their family and, and, and raise a family. They want good schools for their kids so that the next generation uh, has it better. Access to healthcare, you know, safer communities, on and on. That's all uh, Latinos want, how we communicate that, how we deliver that, how we uh, also utilize the assets of Latino families to make our communities more vibrant, uh, not just in the kitchen, by the way, but especially when it comes to our food is a, a, a tremendous opportunity. And as the population grows and demographic shift across the country, I think more communities are experiencing that. Uh, and that is certainly the trend that's uh, continuing into the future. So uh, my fellow Democrats, uh, learn a little bit of Spanish. Let's go knock on some doors. Let's have some meals around the table. Uh, and, um, you know, those policy conversations will come and the engagement uh, will come. The, the young people these days, the voting block from 18 to 25, is not just the most diverse set of voters in the history of our country. It's also the largest. So um, mm-hmm. America, get ready. <laughs> I should leave it there because that was really <laughs> that was really well stated. But I just want to ask you about cultural issues versus economic issues. And there is a strain of cultural conservatism in many of these Hispanic communities, you know, particularly people who have been here for Older voters been here for a period of time and so on. Would you advise people, uh, your your colleagues, to focus more heavily on these economic issues with these communities, or or is that not important? Talking about economic opportunity is absolutely important, right? What I see far too often is, okay, if you uh, 
uh, words in Spanish and talking about immigration from as, as if that is the, uh, the entirety of what Latinos care about. Nothing could be further from the truth uh, when it comes to whether it's religion or conservatism or something. I mean, the point is you talk to Latino residents in your district, in your state, whatever the case may be, and find out what's on their minds and what's on their hearts. For a long time, people thought, well, Latino community is predominantly Catholic, and we know where the Catholic Church is on abortion. But that's not the data if you look at the electorate today. The vast majority of Latinos support reproductive rights and choice. You talk about economic opportunity versus other issues. You know, there's a lot of entrepreneurism in the Latino community, a big concern for educational opportunity for the next generation. But it's really hard to hear that from one political party. If the first thing you hear is they want you out, mm-hmm. right? And so, uh, again, this is a question challenged back to my Republican colleagues. You know, how receptive are they going to be on uh, whether it's embracing uh, fair, humane immigration reform or just diversity uh, in general? Because it's really hard to start talking to somebody about the education or the economic opportunity or anything else if the first thing uh, they hear from a party or the leader of a party is uh, to deport them because they're all drug dealers and gang members. Uh, last question on this. You know, there's a growing evangelical movement among Hispanic voters, still predominantly Catholic, but is that an element of the growing conservatism among some of these voters? That's a, a very interesting newer dynamic that's very, very real. A question back, and this may be the subject of another hour-long session, yes. how, how much of that is, the, is a reflection of our politics versus how much of that is a reflection of uh, the state of the church these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, there's been an opportunity created by some folks leaving the church for a number of reasons, but uh, you know, the, the evangelical churches more broadly as a political force in America, that's a whole other conversation. Listen, it's been great to chat with you. I suspect that we'll have more conversations in the future because we live in dynamic times and you you will be right in the middle of it, I'm sure. But again, let, let, let me end where I began. Congratulations on a really, really impressive victory in your own right, not appointed now, elected overwhelmingly to serve your state for another six years. Thank you. Thank you. And if you'll indulge me, and I know you can appreciate this, I just, on the record here, I want to thank... Uh, my wife, Angela, and our three boys, Roman, Alex, and Diego, for their, not just love, but sacrifice and letting me do what I do. A hundred percent. No no one can appreciate more than people who've been in and around this, the sacrifices that families make in order to allow people to serve and to support you uh, in that. So uh, God bless them. And uh, I'm sure they're really proud of you. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.